Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 50, the big five zero. And it's part three of our series called uh, Glenn's Friends, where I'm bringing on different people every week to talk to me and dialogue about a certain topic. So today, today's topic is the topic of hell. And uh, we're going to be talking to my friend Brad Jersak. So Brad is a former church planter. Um, he is a scholar, a thinker, a theologian, a writer. Um, he wrote a book called uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Closed, Her Gates Will Never Shut. It's a uh, twist off of a verse from the book of Revelation where uh, the writer John declares that the New Jerusalem, uh, the gates of the New Jerusalem, will never be closed. Uh, they will always be open for people to pass through and come into. Uh, so he uses that verse, and from that verse uh, stems all of the things he says in this book about hell, and it's very interesting. So I asked him a lot of questions um, about the traditional understanding of hell. Uh, he talked to us about how that's not the best way to understand hell, uh, what the Bible says about hell, which is very little, by the way, and a lot of what it does not say about hell. So very interesting conversation coming up. Um, I got a lot out of it. I think that you will too. So a couple of things before we jump in. Uh, number one, Patreon, patreon.com uh, slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show. So if this thing has at all impacted you, inspired you, challenged you, helped you move forward in your faith, um, if you have the ability to do so, um, I would ask you to go over to patreon.com slash whatifproject and look at the different tiers uh, by which you can support the show. So there's like a $3 tier. You give $3 a month to support the show, all the way up to a $30 tier um, to support the show. And every tier has its own reward uh, to go along with it. So head over there, uh, check it out. All of the money that um, is given goes towards uh, keeping the lights on at the project. So being able to pay for all of the hosting fees, for the blog, for the podcast, all that stuff um, up front for a year. Uh, so that that can be kind of off the plate. Don't have to do monthly payments. And when you pay up front, it also lowers the cost, which is pretty cool. So all the money goes towards that. Uh, whatever money is left over, it's going into another pot uh, to be used down the road for different um, events and things like that that I want to do with the What If Project um, in the future. So anyway, uh, patreon.com slash whatifproject. Head over there and check that out. Uh, special music today is, I'm super excited about this, uh, my friend Before Jane, is he's a solo artist, and he just released his very first album, uh, and it's by the same name, so the, the, the uh, album is titled Before Jane, uh, his name is Before Jane, and I'm excited, I'm excited to share this with you, uh, this kid is doing some amazing things in the world, and um, he's very gifted, very talented, and I'm really thankful that he shared his music with me so that I could throw it on the show today. So enjoy it. Um, I will put all of the links um, in the show notes so you can go and find um, his stuff uh, wherever it is that you listen to hip and good music, uh, Apple Music, Spotify, all those different places. Um, links will be in the show notes. And I'll put a longer piece of the song at the end uh, so you can hear it in most of its entire tea. So... All of that to say, um, again, thank you for dropping by. This is episode number 50. Let's roll the tape with Mr. Brad Jersak. Every time I think what you 
Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and today we're in for some fun as we are getting ready to sit down with author, uh, former church planter, uh, theologian, Brad Jersak. Brad, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you along. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Absolutely. Thank you. So, uh, Brad, truth be told, I first heard about you uh, from Google a few years ago. Uh, I had just finished reading, I should say rereading Rob Bell's book, uh, Love Wins, for like the fifth time or so. And uh, that's where he challenges the typical evangelical understanding of hell. And I thought to myself, like, I need more of this stuff in in my life. Because for me, uh, I grew up in the evangelical world. And so really all of my life, I was told that the message of the Gospels, you know, pretty simple. Believe in Jesus so that I can avoid the fires of hell when I die. And that's about it. And if yeah. I'm being honest, that, that always sounded like very bizarre to me, but I didn't really know anything different until I cracked open that book. So after rereading it a few times, I did some Googling and I came across your book, um, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, which mm-hmm. is uh, about hope and hell and the New Jerusalem. And that's kind of where I want to land our, our talk today and pick your brain a little bit. But before we get into that, I was wondering, can you tell our listeners maybe a little bit about your, your story? I know you did some church planting, I think spent some time in the inner healing world. So maybe tell us a little bit about that stuff and what you're up to these days. Okay. I'm 55. So it's a long story, but I'll give you the elevator version if there I can. Go. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, for 20 years, I grew up in a Baptist church, mm-hmm. lovely parents who taught me to love scripture, love Jesus, love prayer. Um, but there was these elements of a real hellfire stuff from the revivalists and from camp meetings and so on. Hmm. And that profoundly affected me as a child. In fact, I would say it traumatized me because I was empathetic and yet I didn't question it. I Hmm. couldn't question it. You weren't allowed to. Um, I went off to Bible college that felt the same way. And then I met my wife Eden and we were called to her church, a Mennonite church where we served for 10 years. And during that time, John Stott came out as annihilationist. And this was huge because he was like the guru of British evangelicalism. Mm. And for him to say, you're allowed to not believe in eternal conscious torment opened a door. That was where you could at least say God isn't as bad as Hitler. You know, yeah. like yeah. there's no, there, that an internal oven would be, would be a disproportionate response to anything that you mm. could ever do in a short lifetime. And so, um, I served there. We really got into inner healing at that time because a lot of our kids had been victims of, of sex crimes and so, molestation and so on. And, and we learned how to bring them into healing encounters with Christ that were very effective. I still do some of that to this day. Mm. Um, after 10 years there, I kind of had a crash because we had a severe year of, 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 uh, of trials in our church with addicts overdosing and, and suicides and murder and an abduction. And I, I mean, it just was, we, it was, we were working on the margins, so it goes with the territory, but I, I ran aground on that. Um, my wife, my my wife uh, was asked to lead the church and come in as a healer during that time and just walk them back to wholeness while she tried to walk me back to wholeness. Hmm. Um, and so I spent the next four years just trying to recover. And one way I did that was I wrote her gates will never be shut from <laughs> my bed 
and <laughs> and co local coffee shops and just thought i'm gonna i don't want to pastor again i can't do it 20 years uh, I, I i forgot how to do it in a healthy way so what if i i love research so i went and i felt compelled to ask the question because at that same time i had a lot of people ready to come to christ who wouldn't because they couldn't believe in eternal conscious torment. Mm. And I had a lot of friends who were Christians who were ready to walk away from Jesus because they could no longer believe in eternal conscious torment. So I wrote that book. I think I answer the same questions that Rob Bell would ask a year later. Mm. Um, and I, I try to do it with a thorough study of both the scriptures and church history. Um, and then by the time, so I went on, I, after writing the book, I did my PhD in theology. And by the time I was done there, I also entered the Eastern Orthodox Church hmm. because um, there is space in the Orthodox tradition the, this, as they steward the early church fathers. And today that you, we are allowed to believe uh, that all might be saved. And so we wouldn't teach universalism as a doctrine, but we can believe that ultimately through Christ, with a willing response to Christ uh, that we hold out hope that in the end, everyone will give that yes. And that death is no longer a deadline because Christ conquered death hmm. and he now holds the gates, the keys of the gates of, of Hades, you know, so hmm. that in, um, I finished my PhD, joined the Orthodox church. And now I serve as a Dean of the master of ministries program at St. Stephen's university. Uh, that's ssu.ca if you want to come study with me. <laughs> and we, we do a modular program uh, where you, students can come in for two weeks at a time. And uh, they do three modules with us at the school. And then we do one travel module to the Mediterranean. And mm -hmm. you'll have your Master of Ministry or your Master of Arts. So that's I'm giving my time a lot to that these days and to writing new books. Uh, more uh, more Christ-like God came out. Uh, a few years ago and now uh, this September a more Christ-like way will be out there hmm. and that all relates to this non-retributive nature of God and I would say that as a dogma in from the Eastern Orthodox perspective uh, rooted in Saint Antony the Great and Saint John Cassian and Saint Gregory of Nyssa and these guys that framed the great creeds we would say there is no retribution in the nature of God well, to me, that has implications for eternal conscious torment. It takes mm -hmm. it off the table, in fact. So that's that's my uh, oh, sorry, it was a, like a long no, elevator ride. That's good. That's that's helpful. And I think you're right about your your book. I feel like um, her gates will never shut was really almost like a uh, maybe like a commentary for Love Wins. Like it was, it just really took the ideas I took away from Love Wins to a much deeper level and i think yeah yeah more uh research and not research but just a lot more content involved in your book yeah he i mean rob sort of paid the price at the time of of opening that door didn't he yeah, and he sure um, did. <laughs> but you know it, it's what, what year was that he wrote it in 2010 i think and guess what you know nine years later uh this these alternatives that are actually quite ancient um these alternatives to the evangelical I love what you called it, the typical evangelical, because some people call it traditional, <laughs> yeah. and I really challenge that. I'm like, it's one tradition. I it's not right. the tradition. Right. And, um, and now it has traction. So I'll, I'll give you one example. We, we showed Hellbound, the movie, 
Uh, and it's a documentary that actually arose out of my book um, through Kevin Miller, the filmmaker. And, and we showed it at an evangelical university near here. And after the movie, I thought, how could anybody, you know, believe in infernalism anymore? That's what right. I call it. Yeah. Um, but we asked, how many of you, how many of you continue to believe in infernalism? And I'll say it this way, only 60% hmm. of evangelicals in that university still believed in infernalism, even though their doctrinal statement says they have to. Interesting. And I'm like, huh. that's good. That's good traction in, in less than a decade. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I would bet now this is another five years later, probably since that movie came out. Um, I, I, I bet it's shifted even further now, although some are doubling down. Yeah, I would think you're right. I think the shift is almost like compounding as the years go by. It seems like it's getting bigger. Yeah, it's as if we found yeah. out like that God is love or something. You oh. know? <laughs> Shocking, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's dive into your book a little bit. Um, I have a lot of sure. questions for you, okay. uh, but I chiseled my list down to three that kind of revolve around the, the book and some things I think our listeners would be interested in asking you as well. So, so number one, um, early on in the book, you say this. I just want to read a quote. Uh, Between the covers of our Bible, the authors plainly teach infernalism annihilationism, and universalism, and none of these things briefly. Scripture includes a breathtaking breadth of possibilities jammed with incompatible details, making presumption and easy harmonization virtually impossible. So first of all, if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe tell us what those big ism words mean, um, infernalism, annihilationism, universalism. And then secondly, uh, what do these very different ways of understanding hell and the afterlife like what do they, what does that teach us about God in the Bible? Because if all three of these are, are plainly in the Bible and cases yeah. can be made for all of them, then what kind of Bible are we dealing with and what kind of God are we dealing with? That's a great question. I'll start by saying that I have some regrets about not putting plainly in quotation marks because my, my tongue is in my cheek a little bit there mm. in the sense that whatever theological position you try to hold you're going to say the bible plainly teaches right, right. and then you yes. go to your your pet verses and there's nothing plain about it it's incredibly complex but yeah. to be fair to myself i guess um i will say that when when i say plainly there i mean on a, a, a surface level reading mm. of your english translation in context yeah. you know the one on my shelf yeah 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 which is fine mm-hmm. we, that's the bible Yep. including our English translation. So um, what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to find f- what appears to be straightforward teachings on all of these isms mm. from a certain set of texts. So in your mind, you could create three columns. And in those columns, uh, you could put Bible passages. And at the top of each column would be one of these isms. So here we go. What I have called infernalism and now I see that David Bentley Hart in his new book, That All Will Be Saved, he's, he's calling it infernalism too. And that's basically the teaching that the unsaved uh, experience eternal conscious torment. Hmm. And so that means they are aware um, and it means that it's forever and that means it's torment. And so we would sometimes say in a lake of fire, yeah. Although some of the infernalists would say that's a metaphor for spiritual torment. It's not literal flames. And then others would say, no, no, it's got to be flames. And in fact, God will regenerate your skin 
and the nerve endings in your skin so that you can feel the fire for billions upon billions of years without end. That's infernalism. And mm. at least after 400 AD, it became the dominant view in mm. Christianity for whatever reasons. Some, I think, pretty suspect. <laughs> so that's, that's infernalism. But okay, so if you want to find passages that teach that, you can. Yeah. And so we might use Revelation chapter 20, where those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into this fire, and the fire is unquenchable. Hmm. Um, that also takes it out of the context of chapter 21 and 22. But there you go. There's a, an example. Yeah. Um, certain translations of Matthew 25 would say the same thing. The judgment of sheep and goats, the goats are dismissed to eternal punishment, which, by the way, both words, terrible mistranslation, mm. which was actually cleared up already in 200 AD by Clement of Alexandria, but it never caught on for us. Interesting. Hmm. What did he so say about that? He said that uh, eternal there doesn't mean eternal. The word is... the is has to do with the age to come. Hmm. And so there is an age to come and the word for punishment there is not retributive. There is a word for retributive judgment in the Greek and uh, Matthew doesn't use it. Interesting. He uses the word that is, has to do with a correction. Hmm. So listen to the difference between these two translations. Uh, he will send you to eternal punishment or he will send you to, the restorative judgment of the age to come. Hmm. And then we could add after which there is an end of the ages when God is all in all. That's first Corinthians 15, but we'll hmm. come back to that. So there's infernalism, okay. eternal conscious torment, ECT. We sometimes call it. Yeah. Um, and then the second is annihilationism. And there's a few versions of that. And the idea there is that uh, while the unsaved, whatever that means, uh, don't go into eternal conscious torment one of two things happens. They either die and that's the end of them or they die, are raised up, judged and thrown in the lake of fire and consumed. Um, and this too could be literal or metaphorical in the sense that in passing, and I would say N.T. Wright is one of these. He would say, as we all pass through the fire of God's judgment, anything inhuman in us is burned up. Hmm. And that there will be some people who through their lives have so dehumanized themselves that there will be nothing less left. And, and in that sense, they're annihilated. You cease to be. And there's good passages on this too. Um, this is what the word perishing means. Hmm. You know, if you don't believe you're good, you perish. Well, um, it's also what the last verse of Isaiah says in the new heavens and new earth, we'll go out in the edge of the city and look over the walls and we'll see corpses. You know, so or in Malachi, the, the wicked will become ashes under the soles of your feet. So that's not infernalism. That's annihilationism. Mm. And then we have a whole range of universalisms from sort of hopeful. Well, no, let me go even further. There's a kind of pop universalism where Jesus doesn't matter. There is no judgment. There is no faith response. You're just everyone's automatically in irrespective of the cross and all that. I would call that a pop universalism and that's why i don't like the word universalism because so many people use it that way that's what people think of when you hear it yeah, so, yeah. and i just absolutely don't believe that hmm. um, but there's and then there's like a confident kind of evangelical universalism that you get in robin perry who says well 
yes, all will be saved, but it's because of Jesus, through Jesus, it's through the cross. And in fact, there will be a final judgment where anything in us that is not of love's kind will be burned away. But ultimately, all must, all, every knee will bow. You, hmm. you only get in through a willing faith response in Jesus. But when you see him face to face, guess what you'll do? <laughs> you, <laughs> you'll worship him, right? Not, begrudgingly so that would be kind of like a evangelical universalism and then um i'm i'm what's called a hopeful in inclusivist it might be related to that in a little way in the in the sense that i'm very hopeful that that all will be saved in the end but again only through jesus only through faith response and contingent on death being destroyed and mm. and us seeing god face to face and i would say um uh, Maximus the Confessor is a really good representative of that point of view, but it would be like it'd be a cousin of this kind of evangelical hmm. universalism. So that's that's the key isms. And by the way, I, I've found so far I've found thirty-two verses in the New Testament that seem to proclaim that kind of. Uh, some are actually blatantly universalistic. It's just hmm. you don't take them on their own. Yeah. But if you want to have that column loaded with Bible verses, oh yeah, they're there. It's, I mean, how about this? You know, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that word confess there, it's a confession that Jesus mm. is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the kind of confession you make when Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Mm. Well, Philippians 2 says we will. Everybody will in heaven, earth, under the earth. And if you do, Romans 10 tells us what happens. You're saved. Hmm. So, the, so I, I defend my universe. I'm though I'm not a universalist in that sense. I, I defend my universalist friends because they make a strong biblical case and a historical case from saints like Gregory of Nyssa. They hmm. who were bold about that. And so I'm like, okay, well let's just not rush into calling them heretics then. Yeah. That's good. That's a helpful so, uh, overview. Yeah. Now you yeah. asked about the, um, what does this say about God in the Bible when you have three, at least three, maybe seven different ideas floating around within the scriptures on hell and the afterlife? What, what yeah. Like you would, th- yeah. You'd think like if God wanted it to be so, like if it was going to be so clear, you know, there would be a really clear understanding, but in reality, you know, you open up the Bible and you just rattled off a whole bunch of verses yep. that fall into all of those categories. So, you know, yep. what does that tell us about the Bible? What does that tell us about God? Yeah, let's start with the Bible. Um, Mm. What it tells us about the Bible is that it is a polyphonic book. That means that many voices are represented, Mm. and those voices come from vastly different eras and worldviews, and they are working this out in their relationship with God, and that it's really obvious within the scriptures that that their ideas are developing. Mm. And that tells us that while the Bible is inspired, it's also uh, it also made space for authentic human reflection. Yeah, that is that that is influenced by the st- the stage of revelation that they're at, and also the culture they're living in. Mm-hmm. So in in the and you already see this. Um, in the New Testament, when you have Pharisees and Sadducees who don't believe on the resurrection, mm. I mean, who don't agree on the resurrection. And so they're, they're already in Jesus' day acknowledging that their inspired scriptures 
um, that are, that we're going to have conflicting interpretations of them, and it's not so plain after all. Hmm. Um, so what that tells us about scripture is that it's a polyphonic reflection, a conversation. Remember, these are Jewish rabbis. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen Jewish rabbis debate, <laughs> they are comfortable with tension. Yeah. It's evangelicals who had to cram the Bible into a tight box of inerrancy where everything harmonizes. Mm. And then when you show a first year Bible college student that it doesn't harmonize, they have a meltdown. They well, freak out. The yeah. Ra- <laughs> yeah. The rabbis <laughs> never freaked out because they know it's not that kind of book. They yeah. know that, that, our theology emerges from this conversation with each other about God. And in fact, that's why they had rules. You don't study the Bible alone. You study it in a minion of 10 people minimum. Hmm. And so it's a conversation. So I, I, I just don't feel that undermines the authority of the scriptures at all. It lets them be what they are. Hmm. Um, and, and what they are is it's the people of God in a conversation with God. Second, I should say, what does it say about the, doctrine of the afterlife and what it says is it doesn't matter very much we made it matter completely where we preached a gospel where that was the only thing that mattered was where you go um uh, now i won't say it doesn't matter at all but having a specific doctrine that you could lock down in a plain way just doesn't seem to be a huge agenda for them Hmm. and this really comes out in the book of acts I have my students study every sermon in the book of Acts, whether it's they're on trial before the Sanhedrin or they're doing evangelism in Athens. And they have to go through every sermon in the book of Acts. Not one time in their gospel is the promise of heaven or the threat of hell included. Not Mm. one time. And so then it should disturb us that the way we have preached the gospel is unrecognizable to an apostle. (laughs) Like these guys know what they're doing. And so what that tells me is while they were happy to discuss and speculate and argue and, and even propose ideas about the nature of, of the end, um, that was not a gospel issue. Mm. And so what is plain in the scripture? What is plain in the scripture is the gospel that we've received and is beautifully summarized in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, and then ultimately remembered in the Nicene Creed. Now here's, and so in the Nicene Creed, as they're summarizing, what is the dogma of our faith that you must confess before we baptize you? Hmm. Here's what it says about the afterlife. He will come again with glory. He will judge the living and the dead. We believe in the resurrection and the life of the age to come. That's it. Nothing about punishment in fact the apostles creed only mentions hell in the latin for the purpose of saying that when christ died he conquered hell right (laughs) so okay Hmm. um that tells me that 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 we don't need we should study this and talk about it but we don't need to obsess or exclude others or call them heretics when when they come to different conclusions Hmm. like Um, we've given it a weight that it wasn't really meant to carry Absolutely. Yeah. And then I would say this, what, what does it say about God? Well, what it says about God is, is his, is his focus. His focus is on the restoration of all things through Jesus Christ. Hmm. And, and I would say that when God comes in the flesh, in the person of Jesus in John three, he, he does get fairly clear. He's like, look at, I didn't come to condemn you. You're already perishing. 
Hmm. I've, I've come to save you from perishing. And that's a, that's not an afterlife state. That's something that you're experiencing now. And I, I talk like that all the time with people. I'm like, I don't need to threaten you with an afterlife hell. I don't even know if there is one. What I know is this, you ask, you already know what hell is. You've been in it, haven't hmm. you? And then people go, Oh yeah, let me tell you about my hell. You know, and I'm yeah. like, interesting. They get it. They get it. Yeah. So I just think that, you know, what, who, it's actually an important question. You know, what does it say about God? I would say, you know, in the end, my, my conclusions are that God is a savior and redeemer, and he is not somebody who will consign anybody to a, an, an eternal oven. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So that's good. I was talking to somebody the other day about this kind of thing. And, um, we were saying about how, you know, the afterlife in the Bible is there's a lot of things in there that are not clear. Like we just talked about, there's these three different ways that you can read. But the one thing that is clear in the Bible is, is the love of God and the love that God has for humanity and, and the restoration of all things. And I think that, you know, what that tells us about God is that is his primary focus. And uh, I think we should read everything else through that lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you think about the um, the Bible as this unfolding revelation, where you know the the latest books written in the New Testament are probably John's Gospel and the first Gospel or first Epistle of John, and they're very very. You're getting a maturity now to the theology. Where has the mm. where have the people of God arrived after all these years, and even sixty years after Christ? Mm. And what he says is, God is love, and those who love know God, and those who don't love don't know God. And we have this perfect love that drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Hmm. And, you know, and he's like, wow. And, and, um, so sometimes I, I can't even quote those verses with people say, but, and I'm like, you know, it's weird. <laughs> he, he doesn't say, but yeah, I don't see that. I don't say that at all. So I, I really love John for that reason. It's, I hmm. think we're getting this, the revelation of, of Abba through Christ in its clearest and most mature focus in the new Testament at that point. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, so my second question, uh, a few months ago I was dialoguing, I guess you could say with some people on Facebook, uh, about something I said in a, in a podcast, uh, concerning, concerning hell. And I basically said something like, uh, like the hell that we find preached in a lot of pulpits, um, fits better in a Dante's Inferno than it does in, in the Bible. And in yep. the discussion that, that followed on Facebook, a, a bunch of people pointed out that, um, you know, Jesus mentioned hell maybe more than most other people in the Bible. And therefore, uh, they said, you don't have any right to call this uh, thing into, into question. And so I tried to explain to them that I wasn't really calling hell into question as much as I was calling our understanding of hell into question. But I was wondering, what, what are your thoughts about that? Jesus did talk about hell. I think we can all admit that. But when he talked about hell, what exactly was he talking about? Yeah, that's very good. So the, I love your answer there. It's, it's the debate is over our interpretation. Um, and also we could add to that. Um, well, another way of saying the same thing is uh, the nature of hell hmm. is, is what we're debating here. Um, so I want to t- say two things about that. One is, first of all, Jesus doesn't mention hell once. Oh, wait a minute. What? <laughs> well, in some of our older English Bibles, we will have translated Gehenna, the mm. word Gehenna, in, into hell. And 
Um, and so then you have to ask, what is the ba Jewish backstory of this word Gehenna that he's using? Because what we've done is we've taken the English word hell and read Jesus' passages through the lens of Dante. Mm. That's not how you interpret the Bible. First of all, we say, what is the Jewish backstory of this word? And it goes back to, um, it goes back to the book of Jeremiah, among other things. And by the way, Jesus only uses the word like seven, six or seven times. Hmm. Um, and the, when he does, you have to ask, what does he mean by it? And so he, we know that Jesus is reflecting on Jeremiah because he alludes to or cites directly every chapter in Jeremiah that mentions the word Gehenna or in the Hebrew, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Hmm. So, so every chapter in Jeremiah that, that uses that word, Jesus refers to it in some way through his words or actions. Hmm. And so, um, and so then you have to ask, well, what did it mean in Jeremiah? It was very clear in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is warning them that the temple, because of their disobedience and defiance, the temple is going to be destroyed and the city is going to be destroyed. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to lay siege to the city hmm. and they're going to kill so many people that you can't bury them and you you will have to throw them into the valley of Hinnom south of Jerusalem and and um, so there it's about the destruction of the city hmm. um, and Jesus cites those terms when he begins prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem because God's people have revolted hmm. and now Rome is going to come like Babylon came and if you don't follow the way of the Prince of Peace, you're going to end up in Gehenna again. Mm. It's, so it's very, people say, you don't take hell literally. I just did. Right. That's, that's, <laughs> very that's literal. as literal <laughs> as it gets. Yeah. So it, it becomes a symbol for destruction. Now, to be fair, it also becomes a symbol in, in intertestamental Jewish literature like Esdras and in Enoch, where you have this idea of a, that there is a, a fiery judgment after after death, and they begin to associate that with Gehenna. Hmm. Um, and it seems like they picked up that imagery from Babylonian and Zoroastrian religion during the exile. And so they, the, the exiles come back from Babylon with this, this idea of an afterlife fiery judgment. And the Pharisees preach it, and the Sadducees are like, wait a minute. <laughs> hmm you're not getting this from our old Testament. You're getting this from like the Babylonians or whatever. Mm. Um, that's not to say they're wrong. Uh, Judeo-Christian theology does pick up some stuff from the Babylonians. That's pretty important, like the resurrection. Mm. <laughs> so that's, I'm not just going to dissing that. I'm just saying that now you've got two traditions. You've got a Jeremiah tradition of, of Gehenna and you've got an Enoch tradition of Gehenna and you mm. have to ask which one is Christ working with there. I think he's mainly working with the, the destruction uh, interpretation of Jeremiah. I think he's also comfortable engaging that Enoch tradition that the Pharisees are using, but he turns it on its head. Mm. So here's an example, Mar end of Mark nine, he turns it on his head because he'll say, well, you would rather you would rather cut your hand off 
and go into the kingdom of heaven with two hands, then, then enter, or with one hand, then enter the fires of Gehenna with two. Hmm. Okay, now that sounds like he's talking about the afterlife. I think maybe. Yeah, sure. Um, but then he says, uh, for you will all be salted with fire. Hmm. So now what he's done is he's saying, this isn't about <laughs> the saved and the unsaved. Right. He's saying everybody is going to experience the salting of Gehenna. You're all going to feel the heat. <laughs> right. And then he, the next phrase is, and salt is good for you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so he says, so make sure you have salt in yourself. So he just completely discombobulated their whole tradition there wow. by saying, actually, it's not an in-out thing. You all go through it. Actually, it's not even a bad thing. You need, it's good for you because it's a purification. Yeah. And then, in fact, you can do it on purpose now internally. Hmm. And so it's just like, what did you do? You know, in two verses, he's engaged and subverted that whole, that whole picture. Wow. Um, and I'll say one other one. We also get confused because our King James Bibles used to talk about translate um, the word hell from not just Gehenna, but Hades. Hmm. Now, I, I think all modern scholars would agree that, you know, Hades is referring to the grave. It's, hmm. it's, it's not the someday after judgment, uh, eternal conscious torment thing. Even the infernalists should be identifying. Uh, it's like the place Hades. of death, right? In the realm of the right. Death. Yeah. Right. And mm. that he's conquered that, that mm. he's conquered it. And so this whole idea of using the story of the rich man and Lazarus to somehow prove that no one can come back from hell. It's like not about that. And by the way, Jesus did. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so mm. I wanted to say that about those. Uh, let's just limit what Jesus himself is actually doing with those words and the few times he uses them. Mm. But we also have to admit that in the parables, which is a form of rhetoric, he does have these real warnings about exclusion, being yes. sent outside, being shut out, about the door being closed, about outer darkness, and about weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's from Jesus. Hmm. And so I think some of my universalist friends, they skip over that way too easily. Hmm. But I like how St. Macrina and St. Gregory and then George MacDonald in the 1800s, how they dealt with that. They said, this, this is talking about a penultimate judgment. So for those who don't know what penultimate means, it means second last. So the, the judgment is the second last thing. Hmm. And then redemption is the last thing. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so you see this in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, okay, in the age to come, you do have these processes of purification, Revelation 20 and 21, 22. It's like there's people outside the city. Ah, but they're being invited in. Mm. And when they're invited in, they have to have the robes washed in the blood of Christ. And when they come in, they have to go eat the leaves that are, that, that heal the nations. And so you're like, okay, so this is a process in the age to come uh, of a judgment, but it's a restorative, a remedial judgment. And, and um, where the love of God is the fire that consumes our worldly attachments. Hmm. And that's penultimate. Then, and, and that's what you're getting in these parables, I think. And then you've got the ultimate, which is the end of the ages when all these processes are done, when all darkness has been scattered 
and when the light of God is uh, fills all and is in all, and and so so there, First Corinthians fifteen is our strongest telescope into the future about the ultimate. Hmm. So I don't throw out any of those penultimate parables. I'm not embarrassed by them. I'm like, oh yes, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth when we see that the only life we were given to present to God was a complete waste mm. and we have nothing to offer him. Mm. But first Corinthians three says, yeah, there's going to be people like that and they're saved as through fire and, and they have nothing, nothing but, but themselves, but they're saved, mm. but through the fire of this judgment. And it's like, wow, you, you have not, you have not one thing to show for your whole life. That, mm. that will be a bitter regret when we see it for what it is. And we, when we examine when the books of our lives are open and we look at it and our conscience judges us, will we, but then Christ comes and he'll wipe the tears from our eyes. I think that's such a beautiful image that the, the sadness and the regret and the shame is not the final voice. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's really good. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember reading in the book about Gehenna that the, the rabbis maybe of Jesus's time or even slightly after, um, they saw Gehenna as, as like a metaphor for hell. But I believe that you said that there were multiple ideas kind of swirling around that um, a lot of rabbis said that it wasn't that like Gehenna was a, a place of um, uh, like a place of refining. It wasn't a place that was forever. I thought you mentioned like maybe there were four different things. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but as you were talking, I was thinking about that, that even like Jesus's day, uh, there was really no clarity on the issue. Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, in my book, I've footnoted these and given direct quotes. And, and mm. so you've got, I, I would say this, that it looks to me like the dominant view among rabbis who did believe it was an afterlife judgment mm. was that it was limited in time um, to one year or so, mm. or maybe 18 months, um, depending on the rabbi, mm-hmm. and that it was a purification and what they would do is some of them would, would interpret uh, the passage in Zechariah, which is really about conquest, but they would interpret it this way. When, when you die, let's say one third of the people go straight to paradise. The other two pass through this fire of judgment for the next year. Hmm. At the end of that fire of judgment, the ones where there's something left of them go to paradise because they've been purified. And the ones that, that aren't are annihilated. Hmm. They're done. So that was one very, that was one common view. And if you ask Jewish rabbis today, like, tell me about eternal conscious torment. They're like, that's ridiculous. Hmm. You know? And so they, the, the rabbis I've been reading, it's, it's, it's typically about a purification. And they talk about in Malachi, it says that you're going to be, you're going to be purified uh, with a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. So it's two different images. Hmm. So if we're going to take the Bible literally, Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So which, which image are you going to take literally? Right. And I'm going to go with soap. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, but even the fire one, the fire one is about that the gold of your true self will, will shine forth. And mm. Paul calls it gold, silver, and precious stones of, of your, of your virtues. And, and that the wood, hay, and stubble of your vices will just be burned away. And that's where, the, that's where Jews are at today on the topic in terms of at least the ones I've studied. Sure. That's good. That's helpful. Um, so my last question, if, if hell is not a place of um, eternal conscious torment where God is sending people to suffer for eternity for not believing the gospel, then 
what is the point of evangelism? Because if I'm not preaching Jesus to save people from hell, then what exactly am I preaching Jesus for? And if Jesus is my savior, but didn't die to save me from hell, then, then why did he die? I know these are really big questions, but I asked that because um, I went to school at a Christian and missionary Alliance college and seminary. And so I come from a, a background where missions and evangelism are uh, of the utmost importance. And so I'm wondering um, if eternal conscious torment is taken off the table, uh, what value do evangelism and, and missions hold and why are we preaching Jesus? <laughs> well, um, that's a fantastic question because it, it, but in, in a sense you, you conflated two things. It's like, which one are we doing? Mm. Are we preaching hell or are we preaching Jesus? Yeah. And, and are, is it preaching Jesus just as a fire insurance to keep you out of hell? Mm. Or are we preaching Jesus because of Jesus? Mm. So uh, a couple of stories about this. Uh, there was actually a Muslim prophet. She was a woman who went around Basra in what is now, what is that? That's probably Iraq or Syria. Basra, I have Syria. no idea. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. There are a lot of battles there in the last couple of years, but mm. yeah, with ISIS. Okay. But back in the day there was, it was a Muslim city and this prophet went around with a jug and a torch and people would say to her, why, why are you walking around with a jug and a torch? And she said, because with, with the jug of water, I, am, I want to quench the flames of hell. And with the torch, I want to burn down the gates of heaven so that people will love God for God, hmm. not for fear of punishment or promise of reward. And I'm like, hmm. oh, man, that's exactly wow. it. So here's the deal is... Um, uh, why, what is it to preach Jesus? This is eternal life to be saved from hell and go to heaven. No, hmm. this is eternal life. What does he say? That they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Why do we preach the gospel so that people would have eternal life? What is eternal life? So that they would know the Abba, who is perfect love revealed exactly in Jesus Christ. Hmm. So that's, that's what it is to preach Jesus. This other thing is using him as fire insurance. He doesn't want you to be his fire insurance salesman or broker. He wants you to be his wife. Hmm. Or, I mean, he want, he wants to be our, our bridegroom. Right. Hmm. And so another way of saying this is like, why preach Jesus? Why preach the gospel? Because your loving kindness is better than life. Hmm. Um, and so that maybe comes across as cryptic. I'll say it this way, maybe even more clearly. And this is in the afterword of my book in, in, I, that I call a, a word to my fellow evangelicals. <laughs> I, I, I was one at the time. Yeah. Um, I said, if, um, if the only reason you're you, you are, you are preaching the gospel is to save people from hell, you, you should resign because two things become clear. In fact, I had a pastor tell me if it wasn't for hell, I wouldn't even be a Christian. I'm like, you, you well, you shouldn't be a pastor then. Because mm. two things are clear to me. One is you've never met Jesus. We preach Jesus because he's the most wonderful person we've ever met. We preach Jesus because he's, he's our Lord and Savior, and he is the kindness of God revealed. We preach Jesus because his loving kindness is better than life. I don't need an after life at all. I believe in one. I don't need one at all 
to say that, that, that Christ is my reason for living now. And, and I'm going to follow him to the day I die and share the good news of the love in his father that he, that he came to show us. So I, I just think we, we preach the gospel because Jesus is amazing. Hmm. Second, we preach the gospel because people are already experiencing hell in this life. I've been to hell. Yeah. It's in the border uh, uh, refugee camps on, in, in, on the edge of Burma. It's in the downtown east side of Vancouver where the drug addiction is so bad that the, they're half the population of the homeless have less consciousness than many dogs. I mean, they've been devastated by drug addictions. Um, I'm working every day with people who were molested as little children and deal with dissociation. I'm like, yeah, they don't need me to threaten them with hell. They need to know Jesus now because the human condition right now is pretty effed up. Hmm. And um, so I'm like, A, meet Jesus and you'll find out why I preach. B, get out of your house. Stop watching silly documentaries on uh, about like people's visits to the afterlife, and start meeting those who are perishing in your city this mm. day. And you will have something to say to them if you've actually met Jesus. Wow. This is my concern: is we got people who find out that maybe they don't have to believe in hell, and now they walk away from Jesus because it's like, well, if there's no hell, what's the point? What's it's the like, point? Yeah. I guess you never met him. How mm. is it that so many people? who go to churches could not meet Jesus, hmm. but they could be terrified of hell. That's, that's in fact, maybe that's why we did it. Hmm. Maybe that's exactly why we did it. We developed a robust, horrific, ugly image of God who would send you to his furnaces because we couldn't deliver on the promise of eternal life that is knowing him. Hmm. We, and we, we would say things, well, you'll know him if you say this prayer, read your Bible and pray these, pray, you know, at the ceiling or that's not meeting them hmm. that's why i got so into the inner healing work is because we discovered a pathway whereby people could actually have face-to-face encounters with christ in the temple of their own heart and know know for sure hmm. uh the reality of this life uh, as they saw real freedom coming and real healing and transformation that, hmm. that is just magnificent so uh I just, I just have never been so evangelistic in my life. Like mm. I coming to the conclusion that eternal conscious torment is off the table has actually freed me. Cause I don't have a dirty little secret that I have to bait and switch on later. Mm. I've got Jesus. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah, as you, as you were talking, I was thinking about, I know you have a, um, you have some experience in the inner, inner, inner healing uh, world. And I, uh, I went to Alliance Theological Seminary, and uh, one of the classes that we had to take there was called Soul Care. And yep. uh, we had to do the whole class was basically was the first semester of the program. And the idea was that they wanted to set up the program with this class because they said you can't effectively help other people if you're not effectively helping yourself. And so we had to go through um, inner healing, and we had to, um, throughout the course of the semester, and of identify the places in our lives that we have been wounded and hurt the most. And uh, the professor, we broke up into groups and uh, they brought in some different people who had experience with this. And we did inner healing in the class. And it was like, that to me was evangelism. That to me Absolutely. was because I, I never met Christ in such a powerful way before. Like I yeah. remember, I remember the day that I, I saw Christ come into this extremely painful place in my life. And my professor 
I just wept in my professor's arms as I experienced this immense healing in a place that I never thought I would ever be able to experience anything but hurt and pain. Yeah. Wow. That's it. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Like that Christ is alive and, and, and we've tried to keep people in the faith using this other, this other medium of, of fear mongering. Mm. When you have that, that experience, you're like, Oh, I get it. Jesus is the point actually. And I need him and I want him and I love him and he's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. And I would, I would say that's, that's true for those we're, we're sharing with as well. Um, you know, I've been, do, I've been doing those kind of encounters with myself and with other people now for, oh my goodness, almost 30 years. Mm. Um, the Christ we've encountered in those sessions um, is so consistent, whether the person, the long-term senior Christian or an addict right off the streets who hasn't ever met him before or even been mm. in a church. Yeah. And and that that one that person we meet is is um, just such pure love. Have you you know in an inner healing session? Have you ever seen him pull out the thread of hell card? <laughs> you know, right, right. no, you're not going. It was there a retributive bone in his body. You yeah. know, none to speak of whatsoever. The only place he directs his wrath seems to be at our actual torment. Yeah, you know, That's like, right. and and so. Um, whoever this other Jesus is, I, I, yeah, I've never met him. Yeah. He's not real. That's so good. Well, Brad, uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, this, this was an immensely helpful, uh, conversation. And I just really want to thank you for not only taking the time to come on here and talk to me, but really just your, your work. Like I said, I discovered you on Google and I've got your, that book was the first one I've read. I have other ones on my shelf and I've been following you online for a while. And I just really thank you for your heart and the way that you are so passionate about sharing um, Christ and so passionate and so, so good at taking people's questions as well and helping us come to a a deeper understanding. So thank you so much. My pleasure. And if I could, uh, uh, you know, some of your listeners won't have, have, have heard about this inner healing dynamic where you can meet Christ. Um, I do want to leave a a short meditation with them. If, if If they would Google, Jersack and the meeting place colon facilitating encounters with God. I've got a little one to two page um, uh, uh, approach approach to encountering. And we've, we've used this all the time now. So the meeting place facilitating encounters with God Jersack, and it'll be probably the top hit on Google. And I think you'll find it like it's, it's incredibly effective for yourself, but also when someone else starts dumping on you, yeah, and you could say, "Wow, um, would you like to talk to Jesus about it?" Because mm. I'll go there with you. We can set up a meeting right now. That's good. So there you go. I'll put that in the show notes uh, and share it out with people. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brad. And uh, maybe I'll have you back on to talk about that new book you have coming out. That's awesome. That would be great. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you next time. Have a good one. Bye bye. Good stuff, right? Man, that was so, so good. Uh, one of the things that I took away from reading this book 
is when it comes to topics like this, um, hell, even other stuff, we take a lot of things for granted. And what I mean by that is that we make a lot of assumptions that the things that we've been told about certain topics are true and that they are what the Bible says. Um, but when you go and you actually do your own study and you look at things a little bit deeper, and maybe look at some sources that might even be from a little bit outside of your tradition, you often discover that things are not as they have always seemed, right? And I thought that that's really true with this topic of hell because for me, like I said in the episode, I was raised to believe that hell is this place of fire and if you don't believe in Jesus, that's where God sends you when you die. That's what the Bible says. That's what it is. Done. And you can certainly build that case from the Bible for sure. But when you go and you do a little bit of digging and a little bit of research and you look at a couple sources from outside of that um, conservative evangelical tradition, you're going to find a lot of other uh, teachings and a lot of other things about the topic. Um, and you're going to find that that narrative of uh, going to burn in hell when you die if you don't believe in Jesus is probably not really what the Bible says. And uh, that was big for me because that's the case with a lot of these topics that we tackle. Um, a lot of these topics that we tackle, we're taught to look at it in one traditional way. But as the What If Project is titled, what if there are ways to understand these things that are different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us? And that is certainly true with this topic of hell. It's true with a lot of other things. And I'm really grateful for Brad and his work. He put in a ton of work into this book. The book is a shorter book, uh, but it is jam-packed with information. So I would encourage you to go to Amazon, uh, check it out. I'll put the link in the show notes and um, go do that. Pick up that book. Um, you probably won't be able to read it. This is one shot because it is a lot of stuff. But if you read five, six, ten pages here and there, uh, you are going to learn a ton. So anyway, all that to say, this is episode number 50. Uh, it was part three of our series, Glenn's Friends. And um, I will see you guys next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. <laughs>